Kara Jamborski is a frequent guest on the I Read Comic Books podcast, Archie Comics aficionado, and a World War II history buff. In this conversation, we discuss the British Empire's entrance into World War II through the lens of The King's Speech, starring Colin Firth, and Darkest Hour, starring Gary Oldman. History Channel, I know you're listening. We're available for business opportunities. Enjoy. I wanted to read your text verbatim, if I may. You may. Uh, And I quote, Watch the King's Speech, then Darkest Hour, and discuss the start of World War II from the British leadership perspective. (laughs) It's probably the most intense suggestion for a topic in the history of this, the short history of this podcast. Did I freak you out? I I was I was sweating. I was checking (laughs) to see if I still had my library card immediately after reading this text. (laughs) How did you come upon that suggestion? Because you took you took your time to come up with um, your topic. I had a list. I had a list uh, on my kitchen counter that I kept going back to and adding things to. And I kept coming back to these films about World War Two that I like. And I, I had a really intense list. Like it took a lot of personal fortitude to be able to narrow that down for you so that you wouldn't be spending like 12 hours watching like documentary level shit. So, you know, it sounds bad to say that World War II is my favorite war, but World War II mm. is my favorite war. And the reason that is, is because I think it it's um, it's still a war that we are connected to through the generation of our grandparents, at least we're like you and I are concerned. And it, so it still feels real for a lot of people who are alive today because they were in it themselves or who had family members who were in it. And it really did shape the course of the 20th century and now leading into the 21st century. And the thing that's appealing about it, I think for a lot of people, because I'm not the only person who's like clearly obsessed with learning about this stuff is it was a war where there were clearly delineated good guys, bad guys. There was a start to the war. There was an end to the war. And since then, all of the conflicts that at least America has been embroiled in have not been legally declared wars. They've just been Mm -hmm. overseas involvement. So I think the idea of World War II appeals to a lot of people who are confused by this weird, we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan thing that we have going on. Yeah, there's a lot of like clear cut lines between who, I mean, it's almost like a pro, like the Axis, the Allies. It's Please like don't a pro bring this wrestling. back to pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> I've already brought it into pro wrestling one minute into the show. And because you're right, it's like obviously who were the quote bad guys, who were the good guys. And I admittedly was not up to snuff with my World War II knowledge. I, I I watched um, the King's Speech, then Darkest Hour, and then I was like frantically trying to remember how, like literally how it all started and how um, the British, I guess he, were they considered the British Empire at that time? Yes. The, the British Empire got involved and in Darkest Hour, the film, you see FDR, his brief interplay in, you know, how... Um, 
he was asked for help and pretty much was not willing to give it. Let's bring it back for a minute for our listeners who maybe not have seen these films. So another reason why I chose these two films in particular is because they both take place at the start of the war in terms of Great Britain. And like you said, the the British Empire. And I feel like in today's political climate, regardless of what your political affiliation is, it's a very confusing and stressful and uncertain time for a lot of people in terms of looking ahead to the future. And in revisiting these films, it struck me that for most for the the contemporary point of view at the start of World War II was also this uncertain, stressful time. And, you know, we can look back on World War II now and be like, well, of course the good guys won. And of course America were the heroes. And it all seems so, so set in stone. But when it was just starting out, no one knew it was going to happen. And I thought that these films really captured the intensity and the uncertainty of that time, which I thought really resonated, at least with me, with how the world is today. Mm. I chose The King's Speech because that's one of my favorite films ever. It's just I British films about the monarchy are very comforting to me, and I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> and this film was gorgeous. It came out a few years ago, won a bunch of Oscars. Um, what's his face? Colin Firth is amazing king george the sixth a vision and you know people are used to him being like mr darcy he's the british rom-com guy and he nails it as king george the sixth and he the the story follows uh him trying to work on his his stutter and through that lens you're seeing how he is this unlikely prince ascending the throne when he was never supposed to be king setting up elizabeth to be queen and she was never supposed to be queen um so there was a lot going on and as kind of a counterpoint to that i wanted you to watch darkest hour because that film came out this past year again million oscars uh gary oldman as winston churchill which is this Mm. figure that has kind of an iconic um, iconic presence and reputation in terms of looking back at 20th century history. But again, a guy who was almost not where he was quote unquote supposed to be at this point in time. And again, with this, this uncertainty surrounding his leadership all at the start of this war that would end up being definitive for the rest of the course of history. So, when you went into these films, you said you kind of panicked and went looking for history. Was, but but I, when you were first watching them, what did you think? What were your impressions? This this was the first time I'd ever seen The King's Speech. And I honestly was blown away at how great I thought it was. Like, I thought it was like the perfect film. Like, I was really shocked by... I knew it had won the Oscar, if not for... I think it won for Best Picture or Golden Globe or whatever you want to call it. Whatever award. But All the awards. I just knew that it was involved a speech and a king, and that's all I knew about it, and Colin Firth was in it. But I didn't know how deep it went into Colin Firth's uh, character, King George, with um, Jeffrey Rush, Lionel Logue, the, like, the speech therapist, you know, without a degree, the actor, 
um, Lionel Logue and their relationship with going through and helping his stammer to the point of becoming kind of like a friendship where uh, Birdie was able to kind of like vent somewhat about the strain of the the, cr- the potential crown and Lionel almost like kind of nudging him along and telling him that he can do it and then it like backfiring on Lionel kind of like overstepping his bounds and then them kind of like reuniting t- towards the end. I thought it was fantastic from a historical perspective. I thought it was fascinating because Bertie has to deal with giving these speeches over the wireless, you know, and like to thousands of people uh, who have like potentially never heard him speak before. And he has a stammer. So he just assumes that he's like out of the running to become King at this point. And it was just the slow moving drama of him having to deal with that and then improve. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. And like it, this movie's like eight years old and I feel like it's already kind of out of the mind sphere of great movies, unfortunately, but it's still amazing. So when you were watching, did you have any, any parts that were confusing to you as someone who, doesn't know as much about this point in history or do you feel like you were able to follow along with what was happening there was a part that kind of took me out of it when king george stepped up to the wireless and said hear ye hear ye buy all ye clothes from half ye old queen mother shops there and so should you ask for amanda ye will get good deals Check out halfdoubledesign.com for more. Well, it's funny because the second movie that you wanted to do, The Darkest Hour, Winston Churchill is the, the forefront of that. There is a Winston Churchill actor in King's Speech. He kind of appears every so often, maybe like three times or so, who amazingly is the same actor who was in the one of my all-time favorite movies, if not the Vanilla Sky, starring Tom Cruise. Here, I thought you were going to say Harry Potter, and I was going to be like, you are correct. He was Peter Pettigrew in the <laughs> Harry Potter franchise. <laughs> what a reversal for you. I'm so sorry that I mentioned Vanilla Sky <laughs> instead of Harry Potter. Um, but I, I... So on brand. It was very informative in um, the inner workings of the monarchy because Guy Pierce's I keep saying like Guy Pierce's character, but these are real people. Um... <laughs> Bertie's brother was going to be the king, but he was with a woman who had been married twice and wasn't yet divorced. So by like law, historical law, I guess he, you know, there was no way they could ascend to the throne or like their marriage could never happen because it's just so revolting and unheard of that such a woman could marry a king. Well, the problem wasn't that she was, wasn't divorced yet. It was that she was divorced at all. The issue was that she was assumed to be twice divorcee, and as head of the Anglican Church, Edward VIII could not marry someone who still had a living husband. You know, even if it was a divorce situation, it just could not happen. The only thing that kind of made me even more curious was at what point, and I think World War II had a lot to do with this, but at what point the monarchy became less impactful in terms of either governing or really just having a say in what was going on because there was the prime minister and the prime minister didn't really have a a big role in in the king's speech 
um, as much as the darkest hour, but there was still the kind of king and uh, queen. But like, what did they do? Like, even me as a dullard watching this film, <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, what is their relationship to the people at this point? Because it's 1939. Like, what does a king do? In the, it, it's interesting in the 20th century because the British monarchy doesn't really have any real power. Britain is a constitutional monarchy. Uh, Parliament makes and enforces the laws. The the king and and now the queen is the the head of state. I think, but mm. in terms of actual power, they don't have any. They can't uh, like levy taxes. They can't make laws. They can't vote. They can't really do anything. But there is this nebulous soft power situation around the throne where they're kind of viewed as the representative of the British people. And uh, I, a few years ago, I read a really excellent biography about Queen Elizabeth II that really went in depth about her role because her whole thing is she can't really, as royalty, she can't really have an opinion and mm. she has to like make everyone comfortable. And she does a lot of, like ceremonies and charity work. And you see that reflected in her son, Charles, who's a little bit more opinionated than she is and uh, in William and Harry and the whole family. They are involved in a lot of the more ceremonial things, but this biography was going into how Elizabeth's role as this, uh, essentially she's the ultimate diplomat mm. and she creates this sense of continuity for the British people. Like despite the changes in government and party leadership, there is still always the monarchy and the monarch in question has that perspective for uh, advising the prime minister and the government of the day. So it's kind of like this weird mutual discussion situation between the prime mm. minister and the monarch which i think you saw briefly in the two the films hour yeah yeah they have the the weekly audience between the prime minister and the monarch where they can discuss what's going on and the the king and now the queen can use kind of their soft power aspects to kind of give advice slide things along mm -hmm. um it's like having a lobbyist that's like a celebrity kind like of the most popular celebrity <laughs> like in the in america would be like the most popular celebrity ever would have like an ear to the white house right and like a celebrity that was kind of extremely popular <laughs> and maybe not like you know hated by one side necessarily but it's sort of like the monarch is above politics the monarch is not mm -hmm. elected the the monarch was chosen by god is essentially what they're saying do and, they still consider that now? Like, yeah. is it still? Yeah, when when or does it still have the same impact? When you're crowned monarch, you are anointed in the church because you are like chosen by God. And I don't know how much they're going to emphasize that when Elizabeth dies and Charles takes the throne, but when she became queen in the fifties, that was still a very intense, important part of that ceremony of her ascending the throne because mm. that's the whole, that's the whole thing with monarchy. The monarchs right. were like, well, 
God says I'm the king now, so what's up? And Britain has just kind of rolled with that, you know? Oh, it's so strange. Yeah. It's, it's like, sounds weird in the 21st century, but it's, I think at this point, it's so deeply ingrained in their sense of identity and history that when George VI was giving these wartime speeches, you know, it said at the kind of tail end of the film that his wartime speeches became like a rallying cry for the British people who suffered unimaginably during the course of the war. But they were able to say, well, you know, the king is still in London, which is getting heavily bombarded and he's not running and neither am I. Yeah, I thought it was uh, I thought it was super powerful to convey that period of time in a humane way. As I feel like you chose them very well because the king's speech really does it in an empathetic um, way with you know two characters almost like a stage show or like a play whereas The Darkest Hour does it in a darker way and I don't mean that just because it's in the title but Churchill is a very loud character and he doesn't really necessarily play off of like a Lionel Logue in, in, in his film so I really liked the King's speech um, in that way. And I thought Helena Bonham Carter was like fantastic. She's so good in that role. Oh my gosh. And I was kind of like over her because I feel like she'd been in like every Johnny Depp movie in existence for like a period of 10 years. If you take her or, out of a Tim Burton film, she's like this quiet genius. Yeah. I think that's the main thing. Like every Tim Burton movie that's ever come out, she's been in at some point and you kind of like miss these roles or at least me personally, because I've, I've been jaded. Um, but she was amazing in in the role what did you think as a ww2 aficionado <laughs> when you first saw the king's speech i absolutely loved it and the the ending of it when spoilers he's actually giving his speech gave me chills because they do these beautiful tableau shots where it's just like a snapshot of different british people listening to this speech as it's being broadcast and i thought those those snapshots of all these people looking very grim and determined just even though you hadn't really seen the british people in the film you saw right away kind of what was going on and how they all understood what was happening and how mm -hmm. much it meant to them that the king was talking to them you know, as as he said, as if I could cross your threshold and yeah. speak to you face to face. The King's Speech is definitely of the two of these films, the film that touches a little less upon the war. Like you see that the royals are aware of uh, Hitler's rise to power and they're uncomfortable with it. And they like the whole issue in this film is that George's older brother, Edward VIII becomes king for like a hot second, like he's not even crowned and he decides to give it all up so that he can be with Wallace Simpson, this American twice divorcee that he's in love with. And so George, George VI becomes the king who is never supposed to be the king. And like you said earlier, that's really the struggle here is this guy who like all he knows is being a naval officer and his family and trying to stay out of the spotlight so he doesn't have to talk is all of a sudden the leader of this nation that is mm -hmm. about to go to war and they don't know if they're going to come out of it okay yeah so i i thought that 
that conflict was really powerfully conveyed. And then I don't know if you've seen any of The Crown on Netflix. Mm -hmm. So The Crown follows the reign of Elizabeth II, and each season is a decade. And in the second season, they have just have like a big reveal. I'm about to blow your mind. Ready? So (laughs) Edward VIII was approached by people sympathetic to or involved with the Nazis. And it actually was revealed that he was secretly in communication with the Nazis during the war. And he was negotiating to be the King of England again when the Nazis won and took over Britain. Oh yeah. Yeah. What? Yes. (laughs) So it took like 20 what? years to come to light. But when it came to light, Elizabeth was queen and her uncle had come like crawling back for more money. Like right when she found out this devastating news and she was like, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> you were going to sell us out to the Nazis. I can't. That's, you like the, that's like the ideal plot of a television show. I can't believe that that's real. It's so shocking that he would. Uh, well, I mean, I say that as someone who's only seen the King's speech and literally doesn't know any real thing, you know, like a (laughs) realistic version of him, but man, coming, crawling back and trying to work with the Nazis. Good Lord. Oh yeah. The one part at the end too, where they, he makes the speech and he goes out to wave to the people, which I assume was like a, they try to make it as realistic as possible to like the actual moment where they did go out and wave. Um, I, the one thing that just made me crack up was the way he was waving to the audience, which it, yeah, I'm doing <laughs> like it right now on this video it, thing. It was yeah, even more elaborate than that. It was just like, it was like a dead fish in his hand and he's like swinging it around. It was well, that's so the royal wave. Haven't you seen the princess diary starring Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews? <laughs> Come on. Julie Andrews, just, in the, the Disney classic, <laughs> the princess diaries. <laughs> Julie Andrews teaches Anne Hathaway how to do the royal wave. You literally are just turning your wrist. Thank you all for being what, here today. That, I don't. Has it just not evolved in hundreds of years and they have to just well, wave the same way? If you are waving all day long for like hours at a time, you can't do mm. a full arm thing. You're going to get exhausted. So you do the little wrist turn. And when that gets tired, you turn to the other wrist and do a little wrist turn. And- what if they stop waving entirely and they just do like a... Uh, uh, an eyebrow raise to like certain <laughs> swaths of people or a head nod like at the end of an action movie i don't know talk to william i don't think his dad would go for that but maybe he will <laughs> i don't know if you noticed this but you know you kind of mentioned earlier that like timothy spall pay- plays churchill for like two seconds in the king's mm-hmm. speech and there's an actor i, I can't remember his name playing George the Sixth in Darkest Hour, and their portrayals when they're not the lead role are vastly different from when they are the lead role. So yeah. in King's Speech, Churchill is this like like sympathetic shore character, and then in Darkest Hour, you see that he's like kind of an asshole, and nobody trusts him. Mm-hmm. And in the King's Speech, you see the king kind of like acting favorably towards him. And then you find out in darkest hour that he's not very happy with Churchill at the start. And part of the reason was because he supported the marriage of Edward the eighth to Wallace Simpson, even though everyone else was like, Nope, not going to happen. Move on. 
Yeah, their portrayal was jarring to me, honestly, when I going from the King's Speech to Gary Oldman's uh, Darkest Hour and Churchill aside, but seeing um, King George, who is the villain in Ready Player One, and that's pretty much like the main thing I know him <laughs> from as like this kind of dastardly villain. I was like, oh, God, this guy's playing Birdie. I can't deal with this. <laughs> And uh, yeah, a very, very strange relationship between the two films. When he becomes prime minister, he talks to the king and he's like, we're going to have weekly meetings. And then Chamberlain goes to his like confidants and says how like terrible that is. Like it's just the worst. Why would I, it's like, you know, pulling teeth or whatever meeting with him because you, you get like this kind of friendly relationship and you're used to the king being like friendly ish to Lionel and then having it swapped was was very jarring. But So what did you think of The Darkest Hour going in? I didn't like it as much as The King's Speech. There was a very different vibe to The Darkest Hour. Churchill's obviously an abrasive character, but there was also a very different look to this film compared to King's Speech. Like It was very dark. It was very foggy, like misty, almost like it had just rained and there's just like rain coming or like fog coming up from the ground at all times. Um, the one thing that stuck out at me too, that was super interesting was a lot of the British characters had that kind of olden accent. And I don't know if it was, I want to say like lispy, but it's not a lisp. It's just the way that they like say W's or, you know, OU sounding words. It was very realistic in that way, but there wasn't, um, I guess there just wasn't a friendship element or like, um, that that the king's speech had that I didn't that I wasn't able to connect to and I and that's fine it's just that this movie was like really about the war and Churchill struggling to get people on board with the fact that they can't submit to the Nazis and that they're going to do whatever they can to stay in the war despite the best efforts of some people in the government to get him to accept peace talks. And that was like the brunt of the film, at least in my view. Darkest Hour is so fascinating to me because I felt like it really, like I mentioned earlier, captured the total uncertainty of that moment in history. And it felt really immediate in a way that a lot of World War II related media does not feel immediate because it's very comfortable to, again, look back at this narrative that good is going to triumph over evil. And I think that's a disservice to everyone who lived through World War II because it was a day by day what's going to happen next. And the, the more that I learn about World War II, the matter I get at America is mm. especially how like we as Americans learned about this war in school. We're like, and then America swooped in and saved the day and had all these like great troops and these great supplies. And it was awesome. And one of the most heartbreaking moments in darkest hour for me, which you already kind of mentioned is when like it's, it's, um, it's right when, if, if any of you saw the film Dunkirk, which I thought about making you watch, but I was like, three movies is probably his limit. <laughs> but, um, Dunkirk, which is at the start of the war, uh, Germany has aggressively invaded Poland and Czechoslovakia and Belgium and France. And Britain is not geared up for war. 
it's got like three they've got like 300,000 professional soldiers and they're all in France and they're they have just not anticipated how intense a war machine Germany has constructed they're not ready for it and they're basically all stranded at the port city of Dunkirk on the channel and they don't have enough ships or air power to go retrieve the men so basically they're like oh my god our entire army is about to die and then we're screwed and Germany is going to take us over. And that's the end of the Western world as we know it. So Churchill calls up Franklin Delano Roosevelt and he's like, I need your help. This is the time. And FDR is like, I, I can't. Hmm. I cannot help you. And America wouldn't enter the war for another few years until until the Japanese bombed us at Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that, it shocked me because I, I knew that America was like, mm, we're not going to come and it's fine. You guys can handle this. But just like hearing this, what I assume is, a re- I, I, I didn't look it up, but what I assume is a real recording of FDR's voice saying like, well, and we can't get you these planes that you ordered, but if we'll like take them to the Canadian border. And then if you want to haul them over with horses, like we won't be able to stop you. That's fine. And I was I like, dude. You're right. Dude. So when people go on and on about the special relationship between Britain and America, I'm like, oh, yeah, like the time that we like totally screwed them over by not coming to their aid. Of, I don't know, like two years sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was shocked. Like, I honestly couldn't even remember the reason why the U.S. held out for so long. So I was on like Cora. Like, what was the reason why America didn't join World War Two until, you know, Pearl Harbor? And there was a few answers that like they like historically hadn't entered any wars. They tried not to get involved unless like they were attacked. And then lo and behold, they did get attacked and then they got in. And that led me to kind of like a deeper understanding too overall of the British Empire and its worldview, the worldview of it afterward. But I didn't realize that America wasn't considered like a superpower until World War II ended. And, like, the British Empire was considered a world superpower. And then once World War II happened, they went down a few pegs. And America kind of, like, superseded them after World War II because they were viewed as, like, this great military power. And apparently World War II really, you know, changed the perception of that. Like, they were kind of, like, in the back seat. Um, So the the whole thing, the whole movie kind of made me just understand how world shifting World War II was in other ways outside of the obvious ones. It's easy to to look back and say like, oh, like Britain did such a great job. They were they were fighting like on their own and then they were waiting for help and America came in and like the the fact is there were just more Americans. So there were more mm-hmm. like men to throw out the problem. I mean it's the same thing with the Russians. I think one of the most like earth shattering moments I ever had in a classroom was looking at oh god, I think it was my like AP United States history textbook and it had a graph that showed how many soldiers were killed from each country in World War Two and it was like everyone's like this like little tiny increment on the graph like even the brits even the americans and then the russians it's like everybody died because hmm. they just had so many people to throw out the problem that that's what stalin did he literally just threw people at it was like a meat grinder the eastern mm-hmm. front was just this complete nightmare so again like when in darkest hour they say our entire army is on this beach at dunkirk that's horrifying that's yeah. that means that they're 
they're like, sure, they can slowly build up this army and they can bring in soldiers from the colonies, but their army is never going to be really substantial in terms of manpower. And when you just think of how terrifying an idea that must have been for everyone to keep fighting because they were fighting for their survival as a people at that point, it's just really, really shocking. And I thought fit the the darker tone of the film very well because it was a sobering experience watching that film. Yeah. And him having the meetings with the war cabinet and kind of like deciding not to tell the people that they're really like getting their butt whooped in the war. And like, cause he thought that that perception would just kind of undo everything has his um, personal secretary. I think her name was like miss Layton, uh, how like she started out the movie and got like fired, but then like she didn't get fired. She stayed with him. Has there any ever been any media about her? Because as I was watching the movie, I was thinking to myself like, man, I could totally see another version of this movie where um, Churchill and Miss Layton are like the main characters. And like she plays like this pivotal role of like wrangling in Churchill <laughs> emotionally and like, you know, is, is like the unsung hero of World War II. But I just felt like there was an opportunity for Miss Layton to play a bigger emotional role um, before. I mean, she did really because her brother was in Dunkirk. I think she said Um she had that photo of him, but I just, I felt like there was, I could easily see someone making like a Amazon original series on Miss Layton <laughs> and her, her relationship with Churchill. I think a lot of directors struggle to portray Churchill as a humanizing figure because he was this brash, abrasive, larger than life warmonger. And in season one of The Crown, He's a a prominent character and there is also a young female secretary situation that like Mm. inspires him in some way. So (laughs) I just saw because I'd seen that first. I just saw um, Lily James's character as another iteration of that where the filmmakers were like, oh, my God, how are we going to show that this guy has a soul? So they have like this pretty young girl thrown in there so that they can have like conversations about someone they know who's died and how right. it can like personally like touch this really hardened PM throw so. throw in a female secretary. I got that sounds like a right it sounds like a writer's crutch to so many period yeah. piece films. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Although I guess really it's probably the only at that time the only route where a, like a non-wife female figure would play an integral role with like a, a man of leadership or something like that although i could be speaking out at my <laughs> rear end but i feel like that could be true i wonder if you picked up on the gallipoli reference that they were dropping all over the place in darkest hour okay. right over my head all right so i actually had to look it up because again you think about winston churchill and you think about him as he was in world war ii as this bold leader of the people defending this island to the last and he had actually been you know he says in darkest hour i've been trying to reach this role my whole life and the gallipoli that they were talking about was in world war one churchill came up with this plan to um open a second front with what was happening in 1915 and it was a complete disaster Mm. um i'm looking at this this history channel article right now (laughs) it says the campaign lasted nine months each side sustained 250,000 casualties 
with 46,000 Allied troops and 65,000 Turkish troops dead. Hmm. So they were throwing that around in Darkest Hour a lot because after this like horrible military catastrophe, Churchill was basically sent home in disgrace and became like this tiny little minister in the middle of nowhere and had to claw his way back to the seat of power because people, his opponents were always just like, dude, remember Gallipoli? You killed everyone. You are a horrible (laughs) military commander. What are you doing? So at the time period that Darkest Hour is capturing, just as as the, the start of the Second World War where Britain is concerned, none of the leadership really trust Churchill and we're seeing them sort of begrudgingly come around to the idea that even though he's kind of a maniac, he might be the maniac that they need at this particular moment in time, mm. which is just so different from the way he's usually portrayed as like this, this hero that like, of course he was right. Of course Hitler was a maniac, but I really liked how they, they showed the, the alternative point of view that gets derided a lot with Neville Chamberlain and his contingent trying to, make peace with Germany because they were looking at the reality of their situation and they were like, we can't survive a war like this. We have got to try to get peaceful terms. And Churchill was the only one who was really like, no, that's stupid. That's like asking our country to like roll over and die. We can't do that. And it it took a while for people to really come around to that way of thinking and really embrace it. The part that was surprising to me was and maybe it was just kind of a conscious decision but no one mentioned like the why of hitler being like a like a um like a like a tyranny leadership type character no one mentioned like the holocaust started in 1933 i looked it up just to confirm the year and this was like 1940 this movie but like it had been going on for seven years and i would think like just in my head, the people pushing for peace talks like wouldn't exist. Like, can you imagine like in a world now where if this were to happen, we're now seven years into a Holocaust existing, you know, who's going to be in that war cabinet talking about like, maybe we should, maybe let's talk about peace talks with this person. Maybe let's slow down a little bit. It just seems like so crazy to me in black and white. And I guess in that moment, there are shades of gray that like, we're losing so many people where it's not worth what we're doing, but it just seems like bonkers that there would be like a, an, like a, a potential peace talk with Germany at that time. I think it's important to remember kind of how we saw earlier in darkest hour, how the government is essentially choosing what news to reveal to the public. And at that time, the newspapers were, a little more sympathetic to the idea that some things shouldn't be shared. Mm. And I think it would have been easier in that time to conveniently avoid talking about things like that. Like, it's not like, you know, today you post something on social media and it can spread like wild. Yeah. Yeah. It would, it would have to be like a, there might be whispers and rumors going around, but maybe nobody really knows what's going on and nobody really wants to talk about it or maybe no one's reporting on it. And if they are reporting on it, maybe they're like, well, that's not my country, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. See any major newspaper ever on any given day. It's just really easy to look at what's happening in another country and just not feel immediately connected to it and feel like it's not your problem. So, I mean, if you if you open any major newspaper today and look at 
things that are happening around the world, a lot of it's going to be horrifying. But we're not exactly being like, well, we're America, the superpower. We're the superheroes. We're going to go in and save everyone. Like, that's Mm -hmm. just not the reality. So I can see very easily how that would be the situation in Europe where everyone's like, this Hitler guy is kind of messed up. But if he, like, stays where he is, it's fine. Mm. Oh, he invaded invaded Poland and Czechoslovakia? Well, that's Eastern Europe. So as long as he stays there, it's fine. Oh, my God. He's in Belgium. He's in the (laughs) Netherlands. Holy crap. How did he get to France? Whoa. And I think it would be easy to kind of fall asleep at the wheel and not really think about the worst Mm -hmm. and not be prepared for the worst. Which reminds me, I was looking up historical accuracies or otherwise reminded me of one comment where some historians suggested that like it, uh, the train car scene didn't happen towards the end of the movie in real life when Churchill goes to like talk to the people on a train car for the first time. And he like proposes the idea of, like, what do you think about us potentially surrendering to the Germans and all the people in the train car? You know, the culturally diverse group of people were like, no, we can't do that. This is, you know, we'll fight to the end. And he's like, oh, thanks. I'm going back to the war cabinet to tell him what you just told me. And like it was super over the top and dramatic. But the one historian suggested that it's possible that the British people wouldn't have been so opposed to another world order overseeing them because some of them felt like they were being subjugated to that at the time where like they felt like they were under the boot of the government and they're like okay yeah let's just let's see what the germans have to offer at this point how bad can it be well it's kind of like the the french resistance thing like i assume you've heard of the french resistance being discussed in glowing terms even though you don't consider yourself a world war ii historian Mm -hmm. so uh, after the war, basically everyone was like, oh, yeah, I was in the resistance. But the reality is there were not a whole lot of French people in the resistance. Most French people just kind of went along with the occupied Vichy government because in a situation like that, nine times out of ten, you're going to want to protect yourself and your family and kind of going with the flow of whatever power is in place is at least at the outset the easiest apparent way to do that. So there's like there were many, many French people who did actively resist and help with like they were instrumental in the D-Day operation, for example. But, you know, after the war, a lot of people were definitely kind of taking credit for things that they didn't do because at that point, it's the better story to have been fighting against this new power when during the war you were just kind of keeping your head down and trying to stay alive through it yeah i i i appreciated the differing um themes in both films for sure i think king's speech was my my preference um but i still i mean these are important films you still get to see like the planning stages of some of the most important decisions in the modern world and without these films like you know i read comic books i watch movies i don't generally seek out world war ii films like there's got to be a ton of people like me that just don't remember what we learned in high school you know like in history class and god forbid like i'm not saying these movies are like 
massively important, but they they do they do play a role. Like without seeing these movies, they're like a reminder. Like, hey, this is how it happened. This is what happened. This is when it happened. I don't know what people think my age now that aren't just like super in World War II. That they're they're gonna forget. Like they're gonna they're not gonna know the 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 details of how this stuff started. And like I think Vietnam is another example of that. And like the Ken Ken Burns documentary that just came out is super helpful. But I don't know how you solve that unless there's just like adult classes. I think like these movies are like adult classes in a way. Well, that's why I and a lot of people like me get really intense and sometimes uppity about uh, storytelling and representation in media and things like that. Because I know that why I got like, for example, really intense about comic book film adaptations, because I know that most people are going to be very willing to go see a two hour long movie, but might not be as interested in investing a lot of time and money into getting super in depth to like a comic book story or to like watching a 10 hour documentary. So for me, storytelling is a very powerful thing. Mm. And so it matters what stories are being chosen to be told and how they're told. And I, I'm not, I have just like, I'm at a point in my life where I've accepted that not everyone's going to want to like drill down super deep on topics like I am when I get really nerdy about something. So I'm just like, all right, fine. Like if you want to just like watch this movie and maybe you'll think about something that happened that doesn't exactly relate to you and maybe you'll be interested and look up other things, but at least you've decided to take a look at something you don't normally look at. Have you seen the new Mission Impossible movie yet with Tom Cruise? No, but it's on my list. I'm going to see it this week. <sighs> you know, you're not the first person to ask me this today. My, have you seen uh, Teen Titans Go yet? The movie? No, I haven't seen any of the Teen Titans Go TV series because the Teen Titans. I know. Stop it. I see, I see you blinking at me. The Teen Titans television series from the mid 2000s. You know how I feel about that. But it's like, <laughs> come back to reality. <laughs> see you like drifting away. Get back to the mic. I'm <laughs> out of here. And it was just, it had such an impact on me that I can't, like, I just am not interested in watching Teen Titans Go because it's like goofier and funnier. But for me as an adolescent, I was really gripped <laughs> by these teenage superhero <laughs> tales. That sounds like the tweet meme, me an adolescent <laughs> or me an intellectual. <laughs> That's sad, sad so, to me because I feel like you would love Teen Titans Go. I love Teen Titans Go. My whole family loves it. I'm I'm sure I would, but like it's right, over. Want, it's in the past, Kara. That that Titan series, it's over. Do you want me to illustrate how I'll never let go? I still have not seen the last episode of that Teen Titans show or the movie sequel that they did to it. Because if I watch them, that means it's really over, and. It's not over for me. So, no. I heard rumors <laughs> that they might be coming back. I would die. I don't, Actually, I don't know if I would handle that well because it was such an intense moment in time for me that's so closely associated with that show. I am, like, scared that a lot of feelings and emotions 
associated with that time would come flooding back and i don't think i can handle that how many episodes is season three of riverdale gonna be because wasn't season two like 40 episodes oh god it was way too long they should have stuck with the shorter season one format because that way they could tell better stories i felt like season two really dragged at a lot of points and it should have been two different seasons Mm -hmm. you're gonna kick up your because you're a big star on medium with your (laughs) archie riverdale write-ups is that gonna kick back up once season three starts listen dude i write them for me (laughs) it's just a nice bonus that people that i care about also want to read them Uh um it's all that matters yeah i don't know because the reason i started writing them was because i was frustrated that no one was covering the comic book reference aspect of the show like i looked at a few other show recaps and on like i think i looked at like e-news and vulture and stuff like that and theirs were very just like here's the recap here are pithy comments about it at the end And I was like, there's so many layers happening here. So I just wrote the recaps that I wanted to read full of millennial references that (laughs) I enjoy as a person and some other more obscure references that I also enjoy as a person. And uh, also have a section where I talk specifically about comic book references. But as season two went on, there were fewer and fewer comic references. And that's the part that's interesting for me. So if season three is just like, well, we're all set up and there's nothing new to see here. I, I don't know. Maybe like I'll start out and see how it goes. Cause it, it actually takes a long time to write those. It take every mm-hmm. time it takes me longer than I think it's going to. Cause I'm like watching the episode. Here's my process folks. I watch the episode. I take notes and a lot of them are very like caps locky and it's like immediate responses <laughs> like, Oh no, she didn't. <laughs> And then I'll write a draft of my blog post and then I'll watch the show again to get screen caps. And I, cause I watched the show on the CW online and they've recently changed their player settings. So if you pause the screen, there's like a giant pause symbol on that. it. I hate when so, things do that. So I have to like hit play and be like hovering over my keyboard, <laughs> ready to get my screen cap. and sometimes it takes me like a few seconds to get the same one and if i refresh the page then the ads start playing again so if i play through it once and then like bring it back to the beginning i can like kind of scroll through it without the ads but it's like game over if the ads start playing i'm there for another like hour (laughs) so but it's like really important like i could do the thing so much simpler if i didn't have the screen caps Uh but i think that so many people are used to visual media that i feel like i can't not have them i can't read anything without photos you're such a baby (laughs) it's just like (laughs) here have a picture book (laughs) picture book history of world war ii you start doing those articles without photos i'm out i'm unfollowing your medium account and i'm closing my medium account (laughs) so yeah yeah we'll see how it goes i i don't think i'll be blogging about sabrina though because I am not as familiar with that character. Like, I felt like I had a very strong knowledge of the Archie comics characters going in, but like, and probably I have more knowledge of Sabrina than the average person, but I'm a perfectionist. I'm a perfectionist. So I'm looking at this like, but, but I never read the manga from the nineties and I didn't comprehensively see the TV show. And, but like, I've read a bunch of comics because they've shown up in Archie double digest all over the place. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what I think. 
What's your favorite Grant Morrison comic book? <laughs> I say this because you have a, you're on it. You guest on another podcast frequently, the I Read Comic Books podcast. And the most at the time of recording, your most recent appearance was a Grant Morrison like debate, heated debate, mini so. Well, it's very simple. I do not care for Grant Morrison's work at all, and one of the other frequent guests, um, Paul, he really he he described himself multiple times to me as a Morrison apologist, and so I was like, well, I think it would be a really good minisode if I told you all the reasons I vehemently loathe Grant Morrison, and you, as a counterpoint, will try to convince me that I'm wrong and that there is validity to his work, and so we read. All-Star Superman, and (laughs) We Three, uh, Justice League of America, Uh, and, oh man, I'm forgetting the Batman one. Gothic? Batman R.I.P.? He's done like so many. No, Batman Gothic. It was an older one. Gothic. And... So we just had these this really in-depth conversation about why we liked and didn't like each piece and the themes that we saw overarching in Morrison's work. And I like I have personally hated Grant Morrison's work ever since Final Crisis, mm. which basically like I was a hardcore DC fan and was buying like all of their books and wanted to read everything and know everything. And Final Crisis was such a mess to follow for me that I got really frustrated. And then immediately afterwards, they were like, and we're doing Flashpoint. And then we're rebooting the whole thing as the new 52. And I was like, and I'm dropping all of your books. Goodbye. Thank you for playing. So I just have this like I had this like huge negative idea of Morrison in my mind. So I was like, well, I think it'll be interesting to really unpack this and see if someone can convince me that I'm wrong. So tune in to find out who wins. I'm trying to think of what my favorite Grant Morrison comics are. I don't even know. I liked We Three. He's written a lot. He's he written, is. He's, written he's a, lot. a really prolific writer. He's coming, he just goes he's for coming it. back to write Green Lantern for DC. Just okay, fine. <laughs> Wait, who's writing? Isn't like Kelly Sue DeConnick Kelly writing Aquaman or write something? Aquaman, yeah. That I'm hyped for. She's that also I'm doing her for. own Wonder Woman like black label DC book, which is, sounds pretty cool. I'm into it. I'm, I'm into it whenever they give Wonder Woman to a female writer because like, like I'm sure there are many dudes who can write her and it's fine, but she's just so much more realistic when women are writing her. I've noticed, for example, there was a, a brief, there was like a two issue Wonder Woman Black Canary book that Gail Simone wrote like a decade ago. And I'm like obsessed with it because they're like, they're just like, friends who are out mm-hmm. fighting crime in wacky outfits and i'm just like yes this is what superhero comics can be it can be so good and uh, dc never knows no knows what to do with wonder woman or aquaman so i'm just like okay 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 I'll make my own head can- i'll make my own head cannon it's fine Thanks to Kara for coming back onto the show and educating me about the monarchy, the King's Stammer, and Churchill himself. You can find Kara on Twitter using the links in the show notes, as well as following her on Medium to see if she writes any more Riverdale reviews. And be sure to let her know you enjoyed her episode 
on social media. Goodbye.